Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Did you know I'm making a new trading card game? Go to cryptidcardgame.com to check it out and sign up to be notified when pre-orders are open. You can do battle with your favorite cryptids and mythical creatures, from the legendary Wendigo to the ominous Mothman. That's cryptidcardgame.com. Hi, welcome to Dead and Roasted. What can I get you? Usually, I only see things that aren't there when I haven't had my morning coffee. But after a nice 32-ounce espresso and my morning scream, my hallucinations are all gone. But are they really hallucinations? Come on, let's take our break so I can share these new scary work stories with you. But be warned, there will be headless ghosts and an extra kid in the water that simply shouldn't be there. Perhaps it's not a child at all. These are tales from the break room. Headless Horror from Apex Adder. This happened in Moore, Oklahoma, shortly after Halloween in 2019, so no dealing with COVID just yet. I had just moved to Moore to help with some family business. I had been working in a factory that produced tamales for the Del Real Company for about two weeks. I don't work for them anymore, and I've since left the state and moved back to Colorado. For a bit of context, my job back then was on a standing electric forklift. I moved raw goods and produce to the production lines, as well as loaded and unloaded supply trucks and logistics shipments. It was really basic run-of-the-mill warehouse work. Now, since we had raw food that we worked with, there were special doors that were used for the refrigerated areas of the warehouse. These doors were a canvas PVC-type material that operated like an overhead garage door. They would open and close via a motion detector as soon as you approached either on foot within the allotted walkway or on a forklift. There was one door in particular that led to a non-temperature controlled area where we stored palletized boxes and we called it the box room. Now, this door would activate by itself on a regular basis, and I never really thought anything of it. But others would later tell me it was actually an anomaly. It had been addressed to the manufacturer, and they couldn't seem to figure out why it was doing that, even after changing out the motion sensors more than once. One day, I was in the dry area of the warehouse, where there was one of these doors as well, but it wasn't used. I heard my supervisor call me to come and meet her in the box room, which was just on the other side of that door. However, I would need to travel around to the other door, the one that opens by itself, to get into the box room. It's important to note that the box room is in the shape of an L, and the only door we're allowed to use that isn't sealed is located where the L makes its 90 degree angle. The other two doors are at the top of what would be the L shape one on the left that leads to the warehouse where I just came from, and one across from that, which was a regular person-sized door that led to a part of the factory that wasn't in use since the last company had the building. This door is always locked. You cannot get access from the side I was on, 
Only from the area that we don't have access to can you turn the door handle and open the door. If it closes, it's locked. We are not allowed to enter that building due to hazardous conditions. Anyway, I leave the dry warehouse and I round the corner. Then I drive towards the box room door and it opens. I continue through the door and it closes behind me. No big deal. As I entered the large L-shaped room, I noticed no one else was in there. I was on a forklift, and whoever called me wouldn't have had the time to walk down to the overhead door and exit without me seeing them. I walked around, and I noticed the door leading to the forbidden factory area was slightly ajar. I figured this is what my supervisor wanted to show me, so I approached and wandered through the door. In front of me was a long hallway that stretched for about 10 to 15 meters before ending at a staircase that led to a second-story office area. Directly to my right was a secondary, shorter hallway that had a women's restroom and a men's restroom on the left, with a small break room at the end of the hallway. There was nothing on the right side of it, as that was the wall that separated the hallway I was in from the box room I just came from. I knocked on the women's restroom door, calling out to my supervisor to see if she was anywhere around, but I didn't get a reply. At this point, I thought she was trying to mess with me, because I'm forever jump-scaring my coworkers. I walked down to the dark break room, and I peered inside. There's a couple of folded-up cafeteria tables and a few stacks of chairs, and the room was empty aside from that. I looked at the floor for shoes poking out somewhere, to see if someone was lying in wait for me. But there was nothing. I reached over and turned on the light, and again saw nothing not a soul. It was certainly strange to say the least. I started to go over scenarios in my head about what was happening. I decided that I'm not going to walk into a jump scare. If they're going to do that, they can come to me. I shut off the light and began walking back to the box room. I'll be darned if I let anyone get the jump on me. I was so sure then that someone was trying to get back at me. I flicked off the light, and as I saw the lights go out, I turned and began to leave the room. As I crossed the threshold into the hallway, I froze. I don't know why to this day, but I froze. Every hair on my body was standing on end. I can't explain it, but I had an overwhelming feeling of dread. My hands began to sweat, and I felt myself becoming extremely cold. It was like there was just a standing cloud of cold that gripped my entire back. As soon as I felt this cloud, there was an instant tinnitus in my ears, and as I froze, I heard a faint whisper of a woman behind me. She said, Come look at this. That was not my supervisor's voice. In that moment, I knew the room was empty. I also knew that somehow someone was still talking to me. Again, I cannot explain why, but the feeling of dread was slowly being overrun by the need to turn and look. So, stupidly, I began to turn around. That's when I realized in my mind that if I turned around and looked, I would be the stupid guy I yell at in horror movies to not be stupid. I made the decision to stop turning, and I immediately ran. I couldn't hear anything aside from my heart banging against the back of my head. I reached the door that had previously been left open, but it was closed. 
I could have sworn I made a point of not letting it close. I thought to myself. I was immediately concerned it was not going to open at all now. I slammed into it as I turned the handle, and luckily, it opened into the box room. I turned then and slammed it shut behind me, looking around for any signs of someone pranking me. But I was still alone. I stood there for a moment, going over what just happened in my mind. I quickly decided to go somewhere else less secluded, somewhere with some nicotine maybe. I never went back there again. You might think this is the end of the story, but it's not. After this happened, I decided to keep it to myself, but I also began asking around about the property and if anyone had potentially died in the factory under strange circumstances. I was later talking to my supervisor, the same one I thought I heard call me to the forbidden area. She told me that about two to three years prior to Del Real taking over the factory, it had been a different business. There was a guy who was fired from that factory, and when he returned to gather his belongings from his locker, there was an argument between him and another office staff member. He ultimately attacked her and cut off her head with a large knife or machete. The owner of the business at the time was running security and had apparently shot the man, but not before the damage was done. You can actually find the story for yourself. Search for Man Decapitates Former Coworker in Moore, Oklahoma. This was several years ago now, and I don't recall what happened to the attacker, if he went to prison or if he's dead. But I'm pretty sure that poor woman never left the factory, and she wants people to see what was done to her. The Ghost in Theater 7 From Loka Lady In 2006, I began working at a local movie theater. I heard several stories of encounters with ghosts and shadow people from the supervisors there, who would spend quite a lot of time alone upstairs, babysitting the projectors and counting tills. Not much happened to me personally until I was promoted to shift supervisor at the end of my first summer break from college. When I started to spend more time upstairs alone, I too had a couple of encounters with something. My first encounter was fairly innocuous. This was back before all the projectors went digital, so we still had to thread film projectors by hand. I was working with one when I saw out of the top of my eye someone walking towards me down the dim hall of the booth. I assumed it was one of my coworkers, as it looked like a man and they were taller than me. The figure came towards me and passed out of sight behind the projector. I waited for him to walk by me, but he never did. I figured he was trying to scare me, so I quickly peeked around the projector, but there was no one there. I walked all around it, there was nothing. I realized then that the projector I was working with was in Theater 7. You see, most of the stories the others had revolved around this specific theater. I simply pushed it out of my mind, finished threading the projector, and walked away. Nothing else happened that shift. A few months afterwards, I was on a long shift 
and I had to thread the number 7 projector again. I went upstairs and found that all hell had broken loose. A little background here. A movie film is very large. We have to take two or three cans of rolled up film and splice them together along with any ads and previews the theater and studios require. There are several places in the movie where we would add a piece of silver tape. This tape was a marker and would signal the projector to do the next in a programmed set of steps to control sound, lights, and the projector itself as the movie progressed. The film would be arranged on a large platter, and it would run from the inside out. The rate at which the film ran was controlled by a device placed in the center of the platter, called the brain. It ran the motor of the platter so the film would run smoothly to the projector and back to another platter on the tree. We used small plastic discs that we called hockey pucks to keep the tail end of the film from flying around and causing problems. These worked well everywhere, except the platters at Theater 7. They would never stick well and would fall off quite often. We all blamed the supposed ghost for messing with stuff. Well, on this particular night, I went upstairs and found the hockey puck from the platter of Theater 7 on the ground and the tail of the film wrapped around the leading end, tied in a knot on top of the brain. This hadn't stopped the projector from trying to pull the film through itself, though, and as a result, the arm above the projector had been bent straight down, and the film itself was starting to get warped. I quickly shut it off manually, then proceeded to yell at the ghost to stop messing with things, or I'd be calling an exorcist. Nothing noteworthy happened for the rest of the time I worked there, I left the theater for a time, but I stayed friends with a lot of people up there. A few years later, I needed a job again, and I was offered the assistant manager job at the same theater. On my very first shift, I went out to turn on the breakers to the theaters. As soon as I opened the fuse box, I felt this presence whoosh past me. I turned quickly, and I saw a shadow flit down the hall and disappear. Startled, I gathered myself and called out. Oh, hey, you're still here, huh? Of course, the ghost said nothing, but I began saying hello whenever I went upstairs. After the theater converted to digital projectors, the activity in the booth went way down. We started to see shadows downstairs, though. A couple of employees and I were getting a ladder out from behind the screen in Theater 7. I was behind the screen, and two of my guys were in the theater, pulling. Suddenly, one of them dropped his side of the ladder, yelling out, What in the world was that? I asked him what he was talking about. He said that he saw a dark figure standing at the top of the stairs at the back wall. It shot across the back wall when he noticed it, and disappeared. I ducked out from under the screen, and I saw the curtain along the back wall swaying back and forth, but the figure was already gone. The guy apparently freaked out even more when I told him it was probably the ghost. He refused to believe it was a ghost. I don't know what he told himself he'd seen, but I knew what it was. It never did anything malicious. It was a little mischievous, but mostly it was just there. The activity faded over time until, when I left the last time, we hadn't seen anything of it in months. Maybe it got bored with no projectors to mess with, and it finally moved on.
This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sulfuric Smell and Men in Black From Anonymous This happened back when I worked at Starbucks in Rancho Cucamonga, California, at the Victoria Gardens Mall before the Starbucks was relocated to South Main Street. I can't remember the exact day or year, but it must have been between 2014 to October of 2015. I was in college back then. I went to CSUF, and I was really starting to get into spirituality, meditation, and fringe topics like aliens. I found it super interesting to read about the Illuminati and the governments around the world. I was also researching other things like HARP, CERN, Project Bluebeam, and other things like portals, the pyramids, etc. All the things you would call conspiracy theories. My interest in these things was inspired by a childhood event. I recall one night seeing a triangular UFO flying above our house near March Air Force Base. My dad saw it with me. The thing was completely silent. I remember seeing three circles in each corner with no lights. It was about a mile above us in the air, traveling northeast. As I grew older, I would share my findings and experiences with those who seemed interested in it, especially at work. And as I said, at the time this happened, I worked at Starbucks. One day I was driving to work. I'm going north up the 15 freeway and a bit before my exit at Foothill Street. Suddenly, I smelled a strong sulfur-like scent in my car. This would remain present all the way to the parking garage. I wasn't sure why it smelled and why it just carried on with me. I parked and got my things and proceeded to the Starbucks store. Thankfully, the smell did not follow me into the store. It simply remained there and very strong in my car. So I go to clock in and I was placed on register that day. There was a long line already and I was ringing up the customers. At one point, a certain customer approached. He was a white, pasty man, probably about 5'7", wearing a black suit, black tie, white undershirt, and he was bald with no visible hair on his face. Also, he was not wearing a hat. What really struck me right away, though, was when he approached, that same strong sulfuric smell hit me, the exact same scent I smelled in my car. 
The guy smiled creepily the entire time. I remember greeting him, asking him what I could get for him. He ordered a grande black coffee. I grabbed his coffee and I don't remember how he paid exactly. But I remember him saying and smiling as he said it, Thank you, Aaron. Then he left. The moment he was gone, that sulfuric smell disappeared. Later on, I thought about it and looked into it, and to this day I swear I must have met a member of the Men in Black. He didn't glitch out as some people report seeing with their Men in Black encounters, and he did have human-like features. He was pasty, creepy, and smelled of sulfur. In the past year, I did smell that smell again, making me a bit paranoid. But that was that. I didn't have any further visitations. To me, it felt as if they were sending a message. A message of, We are watching you. When I Met Doris From Montana Rose I started a new job not all that long ago. I've been in the same line of work for the past four years, elderly care and med passing. I currently work at a more family-style assisted living facility in the panhandle of Idaho. I work in the big house, and when I started this house, it had roughly 26 residents in it. During my first week, I was led to believe there was 27. Prior to my start at this facility, Two residents had contracted COVID and passed over the summer. One of these residents was Doris. On my first night during rounds, I checked room seven and found someone lying in the bed asleep. I watched and saw clearly the rise and fall of their breathing before I shut the door to check on the next room. I later, several nights later, found out that nobody was in that room. In fact, after viewing it during the day, I discovered there wasn't even any furniture in that room. On my second night around 4am, a small and frail-looking round-faced woman in glasses with wispy hair came shuffling around the downstairs fireplace, holding a comb in one hand and a hair tie in the other. The shuffle of her feet was distinct and rhythmic. I turned to my shift trainer to ask who the resident was, but when I turned back, she was gone. When I explained what I saw, my shift trainer told me that was impossible because that resident had passed almost an entire month before. This entity bore no ill will. She was merely following the patterns of her life as they'd been for many months before she passed. I've seen her a few times since then. She still comes shuffling from behind the fireplace in the early morning to have her hair done. My last summer camp as a counselor from Backwoods Hunter. When I was 16, I worked at a kid's summer camp in upstate New York. I had already gone there five summers in a row as a camper, so I was very familiar with the owners and staff. It was a small camp, only about 60 people total each year. It was located on a lake, and because no road led to it directly, the camp was only accessible by boat. We stayed in old heavy canvas tents for the duration, which was two months. It was a beautiful place, and I was thrilled to experience the counselor side of things. 
that would change around week four that year. Things had been going well. I was having no issues running activities besides that one kid who liked to scream almost 24-7. They were not so happy to be there. Besides that, I also helped during the open swims. This was when the kids could swim in the large main boating area safely, with supervision from most of the staff. Every swim, I would be in a rowboat, keeping it steady outside the swim area while a certified lifeguard sat in the back watching the kids. Every few minutes, the owner standing on the dock would blow a whistle, signifying that we were to count all the kids in the water, making sure none were missing. The kids would each hold up a hand until the count was done. Every staff member had to count the kids and say they had the correct number. On that sunny day, I was having fun keeping the rowboat in place. The whistle blew and I began the count with all the other staff. Keep in mind, this was the fifth or sixth count of the swim. I knew from the previous counts that the total number of kids that day was 28. As I counted, oddly enough, my total came to 29. Confused, I notified the owner by calling out that I had the wrong total, 29. I watched from the boat as he asked the other staff around him if any new campers were in the water, and they confirmed that 28 was supposed to be the right number. He called on the swim to continue and sort of shrugged. I scrunched my face and nodded back, but couldn't help but feel that something was off. On the next count, I decided to pay extra close attention to the kids while I counted. I wasn't really worried, but I was very curious. At the next whistle, I carefully began counting. I took note of every kid's face before moving to the next. At 16, I stopped. Every kid held up a hand while treading water except for one. This kid was perfectly still in the 10-foot deep water, facing away from me, submerged up to their chin, not holding up their hand. I stared blankly for a moment, then I blinked. When I blinked, the kid was gone. At this time, the other counselors began calling out their totals. One by one, they all exclaimed, 28. At this point, I felt as if I must have been seeing things, but I quickly did a recount of the children. 28. I was the last to confirm the count, but for the remainder of the swim, I counted 28 every time. We finished up the swim and for the rest of the day I was in a fog. That night, I lay on my cot, staring at the opening in the tent flap for a few hours before sleeping. About a week later, a group of counselors wanted to swim at night after the kids went to bed. This was the area used during open swim, and I thought it'd be fun, so I joined in. I'd mostly written off the earlier incident, so I was laughing and messing around with the group. With a smile, I dove into the water from the dock. I came up, turning to face where I jumped from. I stopped as my eyes fell on a space beneath the dock. Every few feet, there were large bright blue barrels fastened beneath the dock to keep it afloat. In one of those open spaces, between two barrels, I saw something silhouetted by lights from a house across the pond. It was a small, perfectly still head peeking from the water. Its features were obscured by shadow, but judging by the shape of the hair, I knew it was the same kid I'd seen earlier. Number 29. I jolted in surprise, sweeping my arms forward to swim away from this figure. In my haste, 
I splashed water in my eyes, so I had to wipe them clear. When I opened my eyes again, the figure was gone. Quickly, I swam to the dock and pulled myself out. No one seemed to notice what had happened, and I recovered my breath and grabbed my towel. I stayed out for a while, playing it off that I was just cold. As the other counselors swam, I kept my eyes on the dock and the surrounding water. Nothing else happened that night, and we all eventually went to our respective tents. Every sound I heard outside the tent that night made me tense my body up, and I would hold my breath to listen. For the remainder of the summer, I avoided the swim area as much as possible. I would fake illness to not have to assist with rowing. No one seemed to notice, and the day I left, I knew I probably wouldn't be coming back. I have no clue what that thing parading as a child really was, but I know that it scared the heck out of me. I don't know if anyone else that attended the camp saw anything strange, but that was the most unsettling thing I've seen. For all those working at summer camps, be safe and keep your eyes on the water. You never know what is watching. Tales from the Break Room is a viewer-submitted podcast featuring allegedly true scary stories that happened on the way to, on the way from, or at work. If you want your story to be narrated on the show, send it to us at eeriecast.com submit. As of April 14th, we're paying three cents per word for stories that are approved and make it onto the show. Submission does not guarantee approval or payment. For a limited time only, PayPal only. Tales from the Break Room is an EerieCast Network original podcast hosted by Darkness Prevails. You can follow him on Twitter at Dark Prevails, and you can hear thousands more stories read by him on our other show, Unexplained Encounters. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and rate Tales from the Break Room on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also enjoy plenty more horror-themed podcasts at EerieCast.com.